All right. Well, I'm nervous because I have no idea uh, what you all are going to be putting in there because I can't see it while I'm taking you through this. But, you know, we're just going to have some fun. I want to start by reminding you for the past 26 weeks, we've been in what I'm calling the book of First and Second Samuel. That's because originally it was all one thing. It was one long scroll from beginning to end. And then when we decided we wanted to chop things up into pages and bind them into books, it made the most sense for this long scroll of Samuel to get split up into First and Second Samuel. And also the Hebrew scriptures today, they use different numbering and divisions for all of their stuff too. And so it's just important for us to realize that this entire work, Samuel, from the beginning of First Samuel to the end of Second Samuel, it's one unified work. That made the most difference when we were at the border between the two of them, because if you think that one book is ending and the next one is beginning, you have to get rid of that. And just remember, this is just sort of like another chapter in the same story. But the big idea of the entire series basically boils down to this, that God is looking for people who are looking for him. God is after someone who would be after him. This is just what a relationship is like. People who want to have a relationship with someone don't want to have a one-way relationship. You don't want to have a relationship with someone who doesn't ever respond. You want to have a relationship with someone who wants to have a relationship back. And that's who God is. And so this title of the series has been Pursuit because we've been looking at various people and whether or not they are pursuing God. And we've also been looking at God and how he has been pursuing them. And so let's go over some of the main characters in the story. But before we do that, let me give you the verse that has been our theme verse for this entire thing. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. This once again is Samuel the prophet talking to Saul, the first king, telling him that God no longer likes him, which is a great message to have to a king, right? I mean, you're not getting yourself into any danger there when you're saying something like that, but yeah. So now Samuel says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This whole idea of the, the purpose of First and Second Samuel boils down to the fact that some people are after God and some people aren't. And there is one character in this story that we are told is after God. And later on we meet him. His name is David. And that doesn't mean that David is after God in the sense that he always takes after God. And it doesn't mean that David is after God in the sense that he always pursues God. It's both of those things and not perfectly. David has flaws. He has mistakes. We see time and time again when he does stuff that is egregious and terrible. And it's not just the one account of the one mistake in the middle of 2 Samuel that many of you are familiar with. David is a flawed person who regularly makes mistakes. But the difference between David and everybody else is that when David makes a mistake, he owns up to it, he turns back around to God, and he pursues God all over again. David is a man after God's own heart. And so, once again, let me remind you these phrases. They're printed on your note sheet. We'll put them up on the screen too. God is pursuing someone who would pursue him back. God is after someone who is after him. Now, let's go through some bullet points. 
If you have your Bibles open and you want to flip through them as we go, then I, I didn't put chapter and verses on the note sheet, but uh, this coincides largely with the overall outline of our past 26 weeks. You'll notice there are not 26 bullet points here because I didn't get that detailed and that exhaustive, but I'm trying to give you a summary to remind yourself of some of the things that we've been talking about. The first one is that Hannah wanted a son and sought God. She wanted a son. We had this woman. She could not have any children. She wanted to have a child, and so she pursued God. She went to God. She prayed at the they didn't have the temple at the time, but she went to where God was, where he had his priest at the tabernacle, and she prayed and sought God there, and God heard her prayer and answered her prayer with a child. She gave birth to a son. She named that son Samuel. She took that son back to God because she had made a vow that she would dedicate her son back to the work of God. And so when he was old enough, she brought him back to serve the priest at the tabernacle. And the lesson that we learned from that is this interesting lesson because there was this detail in the Hannah story that we mentioned that first week, but I haven't mentioned a lot since. The passage specifically tells us that the Lord had closed her womb. In other words, the passage tells us that it was God's fault she didn't have any children, that God had chosen for her to not have any children. Now, I don't know why that's the case. It's possible, like I can come up with a story in my mind, it's possible that God says, I know what I need to do is I need a man like Samuel. And the way to get a man like Samuel is to have her give birth at this particular time with her first child. And the way to get that child to be born at that particular time is to give her no children up to that point so that then she will pray and ask me for a child at the right moment and then she will get pregnant and then she will have a child. I don't know what God's plan is. I can't explain God's plan. There's no way for me to understand it. But I know he has one. Because the whole point of this entire story begins with a woman who couldn't have children because God had made that choice. And that's a lesson for us, I think, that no matter what kind of hardship or frustration or pain that we're dealing with, God has a plan and he's still working on it. Don't give up on him. So the second bullet point, Samuel actually sought God and he became the leader of Israel. He wasn't the priest. He wasn't a king. He wasn't anything special. He was just a person who listened to God and repeated what God said to other people. So that makes him a prophet. But he wasn't just a prophet. He was a man who listened to God's word and actually did things with God's people. And so he became a judge. He was like the, the judge who helped deliver them from their enemies. He was both prophet, he was leader, he was judge, he was all these things, and it just basically came down to the fact that here was a guy who was willing to pursue God and report to the people what God had said. Number three, the people begged for a king, so God gave them what they wanted. Man, I love this story. What happened here is that they wanted to defeat the Philistines, and so they took the ark, which is this gold-covered box of wood, they took the ark to the battle because they thought if they had God's special box with them in the battle, then God would show up and help them in the battle. That's what they thought. They thought they could manipulate God by carrying God's special box into the battle. So they did. They took this box, and what happened was the Philistines captured the box. 
They defeated the people, they took the box, and moreover, they brought the box back and put it in front of their temple, in their temple, in front of their God. And then I just love that because the next morning, their God was lying on his face, their idol was lying down on its face in front of the box as if it was bowing down to the ark of God. I just love that story. But the point of that story is that at the end of it, all the people realize they can't control God. And since you can't control God, And since God sometimes is going to help you fight your battles and sometimes he's not, depending on whether or not he's on your side or you're on his side, since you can't control God, they decided we need a king. And so they begged Samuel for a king and Samuel went to God and God said, they've rejected me, so let's give them exactly what they want. And he gave them a king who looked the part, who seemed like he was perfect. He was tall. He was handsome. He was everything you wanted in a king except for the fact that he was a coward and he was also selfish. They didn't care about the character of that king. They only cared about whether or not he could act like the strong man that they wanted him to be. And so King Saul became the king. And our lesson for you and for me was don't settle for what you want. God actually has something better for us. Don't settle for what you want. The next bullet point. King Saul had one shining moment where he used his power to rescue others. But after that, King Saul just pursued his own interests and ended up losing everything. We had this cool story of Jonathan, Saul's son, who eventually was like, my dad's not going to fight this battle for us, but uh, you know what? God is on our side, I think. And so let's do this thing. We know God can. Maybe God will show up. And so he and his other buddy said, so let's go. We know God can. Maybe he'll show up. So let's go. And him and his other buddy went and they conquered a bunch of the Philistines and proved that when you follow God, victory can happen. And so we talked a little bit about that, but Saul, he was just still all on his own selfishness. And that's when Samuel comes up to him and says, sorry, your kingdom is no longer yours. I'm going to give it to someone else. So David shows up in the next scene. David was a character who pursued God and God promised the kingdom to him. Now there's a really fascinating thing we learned back then. And I just want to highlight it for you. When Saul became the king, God put his Holy Spirit on Saul. When Saul no longer was the king, God took his Holy Spirit off of Saul. Both of those things happen in this story. When when Saul became the king, God put his spirit on Saul. When Saul no longer was approved by God, God took the spirit away from Saul. And then the story tells us that David was anointed to be the king, and the spirit came on David. And then the next thing the story tells us is that God took David and sent him back to Saul to serve Saul. And it's this amazing story of mercy where God judges Saul. He takes away the kingdom. He takes away his spirit. He gives his kingdom and his spirit to David. And then he gives David back to Saul so that David would be a servant in Saul's palace. It's an amazing picture of God's judgment and his grace. That even though God is judging Saul and he's taking all these things away, he actually brings them right back to him. Just an amazing story there. And then we get to the David and Goliath story. And the David and Goliath story is something that I, if I have enough time, I'm going to come back to a little bit. But today I just want to make one point. In the story, you all know it, I think, 
David has a sling, not a slingshot that's like a rubber band thing. He has a sling, a strip of leather that he's swinging around, and it's got a rock in the pouch at the bottom. And he's swinging it around. He lets go of one hot side of it. The rock flies out. It hits Goliath in the forehead. Goliath falls down on the ground. David runs up, grabs Goliath's sword, and kills him. But in the story, it says like three times in the story, without a sword, David slayed Goliath. Now, the eventual killing happens with a sword, but the narrator wants us to know that through the entire time, David never had his own sword. And so it says repeatedly, without a sword, David killed Goliath. Without a sword, David killed the giant. And I just want to highlight for you and for me that there are a lot of times in our lives where we're going to think we're up against a giant. And maybe we are and maybe we're not. But there is no giant that has ever been big enough that God's people needed a sword. It has never happened. Maybe a sword will present itself at an opportune moment that God brings into the story, but there is no reason ever for God's people to carry a sword with them when they're facing a giant. Because God's on their side. Or, better yet, more accurately, We, hopefully, are on God's side, and he doesn't lose. Let's keep going. The next little bullet point is that Saul spends years trying to kill David, but David keeps running away, and he keeps winning. And there's this one moment where David wins in a backwards way. What happens is David encounters a foolish man whose name is literally fool. His name is Nabal. He encounters this man, and this man is not kind to David and all of his men. So David has an entourage of men now that are following him, and Nabal is not kind to David, even though David has been kind to Nabal and his shepherds. And so David says, we would like something from you to help us survive. And Nabal says, no. And so then David is ready to just go all to town on Nabal and all the other people with him. David is going to kill them all. He's going to absolutely massacre Nabal's entire household. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes out and she talks some sense into David, specifically to remind David that David is someone who is trying to be on God's side. And this is not the thing that God wants to be done. So let it go. And so David does. He wins by listening to this woman tell him that he's going down a bad path and he turns around because of the way he wants to honor God with his life. That doesn't happen a lot of times, but it happens a few times and it only happens in these stories with David. Keep going. David fails and repents multiple times, but Saul fails and doubles down even to the point where he uh, consults a witch And we're told in the text that she's a witch from Endor, which is great. If you're familiar with Star Wars, Endor was in the Bible first, all right? There's a witch in Endor. Saul visits her. He sees Samuel come up out of the ground, and we talked a little bit about ghosts that week and what that's all about. So anyway, he sees that's weird, but Saul doubles down, and then he eventually dies in battle. And that's the end of the first volume, and then we begin second volume, second Samuel. David starts his kingdom with grace and peace. He refuses to call Saul's family his enemies. Instead, he calls them his brothers. 
And he takes all of the people who were Saul's descendants and Saul's relatives and Saul's family members and he shows them honor and he gives them grace and he gives them blessing as much as he possibly can. And he refuses to talk about the previous king as if the previous king were his enemy. Even though the previous king was literally trying to kill him for like 20 years. But David refuses to label him as an enemy. And that's how he starts his kingdom. The problem was David's goal of peace doesn't um, work out well for him near the end. But the second thing David did is he started the kingdom with devotion to God. And the ark comes back into the story. And this time David says, I want to get the ark and bring it back into Jerusalem. And so he sends some messengers. They pick up the ark. They're getting ready to bring it back to Jerusalem. They put it on a cart. The ark is going on this cart and the oxen begin to stumble. And there's a man named Uzzah standing next to the cart. And he's worried that the ark is going to tumble off. And he's afraid that God would be dishonored. And he realizes that if the ark tumbles off, God will be dishonored. And someone has to come in to God's rescue in this moment. And so Uzzah puts his hand up to stop the ark from wobbling. And as soon as he touches the ark of God, he dies. And then everybody's freaked out. Oh my goodness, this box from God is actually dangerous. And so they just leave the ark, as to the, they bring it to the closest house they possibly can find, and they just leave it there. And then David goes through the process of actually learning what God's will is for transporting the ark. He reads some of the Old Testament law. He reads some of the Moses law, and he's like, okay, we're going to do it right. And this time, he has the Levites carrying the ark on a big pole that is, the ark is in the middle, and the people are holding the pole up, and they carry it all the way back into Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, David begins to celebrate and worship, and he's wearing priestly clothing, and he's dancing around. And the problem is that the priestly clothing is kind of like um, an apron uh, or a hospital gown. And um, when you dance in one of those things, they can... Uh, expose what's underneath. And back then in those days, they didn't have such things as underwear. And so uh, David kind of embarrasses himself. And his wife, a woman named Michal, just absolutely is angry with him. And she's like, how you've disgraced yourself. And David says, I will let myself be even more disgraced if I am bringing honor to God. And that whole story leads us to two questions that I asked you back then. And I want to kind of just ask them again. Number one, does God save me or do I save God? That whole idea of Uzzah touching the box because this this box might fall and he needs to step in and preserve God's honor. Does God save me or do I save God? The point of the story is that you never save God. He gets to do his own thing. The other thing, It's not just, do I save God or does God save me? The other one is, is God in the business of bringing honor to my life or am I in the business of bringing honor to God's life? Because David is saying, I'm willing to be undignified because it's not about whether God brings honor to me. It's about whether I'm bringing honor to God. And that's okay. But let's move on. The next one we find after the ark situation, God makes a new covenant with David. He promises David that he is going to be the forever king. And then the rest of the story is this just roller coaster of David getting things right and getting things bad. He's getting things right and he's doing things poorly. He's going on this roller coaster of getting things, he's doing it well, but then he doesn't. 
David repeatedly loses focus on God. It ends up bringing disaster to him or the people around him. And then he repents, and then God restores him. And I don't want you to come out of this with the mindset that David is always perfect. To say that David is a man after God's own heart is not to say that David perfectly followed God. No. To say that David is a man after God's own heart is not to say that David always looked the way God wanted him to look, that David took after God. No. We've talked about this before. The best way to describe what David did with Bathsheba was rape. The best way to describe what David did with Michal was theft. He stole her from her husband so that she could be his husband. The best way to describe David's actions in a lot of places is egregiously wrong. He is guilty of murder. He is guilty of sexual sin. He is guilty of all kinds of things. But where he's not guilty is that when God tells him you've done wrong, he agrees. He says, I have done wrong. And he pleads with God for mercy and forgiveness and restoration if God would choose to bring restoration. And God does. Because David is the model for a person who might not always be after God, but is always after God trying to pursue in that direction. So I'm going to pause here for a moment. We're going to come back with a few points of application at the end, but we're going to jump into some time of question. And I know some of our questions are going to be about the stuff in Samuel, and some of our questions are, are going to be wider ranging, but let's see what we can cover. Let's see what ground we can cover. And then at the very end, I've got a couple encouraging things that I want to give to you by way of, you know, application. And we'll just see what God does with this time, okay? So what do we have? Let's bring it on up here. The top one is tied. The top one says, truly, what does it take to go to heaven? We are all human in sin. I hate to word it like this, but what is the criteria? Ooh, okay. So the standard uh, Bible preacher answer is to tell people that they need to, and then the next phrase changes. They need to give their life to Christ, or they need to ask Jesus into their heart, or they need to repent and be baptized. Of the three things that I just said, only one of them actually shows up in the Bible. The phrase repent and be baptized. The other two are ways that we try to shape and understand the full teaching of the Bible. But let's say I only quoted Jesus. How to be saved according to Jesus is, uh, well, one guy says, Master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus's response is, well, keep the commandments. And then the guy says, well, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, aha, you're lacking one. And based on what Jesus says there and the, the commandments that Jesus quotes and the one he misses, we know that the man is missing commandment number one love the Lord your God, you know, put God first in your life. And so then he says to this guy, okay, so then if you've kept the commandments, sell everything you have and follow me. So for that guy, he asks, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus's answer is, leave everything on the earth behind and follow me. Or some other time Jesus would say, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then we conclude that saved means going to heaven. 
So that's a roundabout way of using a whole bunch of Christian terms to demonstrate that there is not a really uh, pat answer that has been given to people that covers everything. So I'll give you a few simple things. Uh, Peter, when he is asked by the people, what must we do? His answer is repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise that has been offered. And that's a promise of the Holy Spirit for now and eternal life in the future. So he uses the phrase repent and be baptized. Um, later on, the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he will say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Again, the word is saved. We add the extra layer of heaven, and we, we add that as a phrase, uh, a concept. But the Bible words don't focus on heaven. The Bible words focus on other things. They focus on a relationship with God, they focus on eternal life, and they focus on something called being saved, which means that I am now in a place of danger unless I allow God to pull me out of that danger. Okay. And since we're on the topic of heaven, let me also add this. A lot of times when people use the word heaven, they're referring to the place of immediate destination after you die, where when a person dies, their soul immediately goes to either heaven or hell. The problem is the Bible has four destinations that it talks about with different terms, and we combine them all into two called heaven and hell. Those four different destinations, there are two destinations that come before the end times, and there are two destinations that are on at the end of the end times. The ones before the end times, the Bible calls paradise and Hades, or sometimes Sheol. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says to the thief next to him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. When he tells the story of a rich man and a poor man who both die and they end up in the place where they end up in after they die, Jesus calls the poor man, he says that the poor man is in a place of paradise and he gives it this other term too, he calls it Abraham's bosom, which just, just means the family of Abraham or the God's chosen people. And then the other man is in the place called Hades. But then... After Jesus returns, there is going to be a great judgment. And at the time of the great judgment, there will be some people who then are allowed to go into the presence of the Father and into the joy of the presence of the Father. And there are other people who are going to go to a place called the lake of fire. And at that judgment time, there's this amazing story. At that judgment time, Jesus is going to open up a whole bunch of books. I'm going to stand in front of him one of these days. And Jesus is going to open up a whole bunch of books. And he's going to flip through them page by page. And my name is going to be at the top of one of the chapters. And the whole rest of those, however many chapters, it's going to be a list of all the things that I've done. And Jesus is going to flip through it. And he's going to be like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, see, now that one, that was kind of good. Oh, no, no. And he's going he's gonna to judge me. But the, at the end of that whole long process of flipping through those pages, we are told there is another book. And this other book doesn't have any actions in it at all. It doesn't have any behaviors in it at all. It's just called the book of life. And if your name is in it, then you're one of the people who gets to go to the presence of the Father for eternity. 
And if your name is not in it, then you are one of the people who is cast into the lake of fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this is how I summarize all this stuff together. The way I summarize it all together is, if I want to have a secure eternity, I, number one, put my full weight and trust on the work that Jesus has done for me. It is not about me. It is what Jesus has done for me. And I respond to that with grace and faith and I just, and ju- just love. And I say, God, thank you so much for sending your son that I might be cleansed and forgiven. Thank you so much. I pursue relationship with God because I want Jesus to know my name because I know his name but I want Jesus to know my name. And so I pursue relationship with him through, through obedience, through faithfulness, through prayer, through, you know, I'm not doing the things that I do because I think they earn me some spot in heaven. I'm doing what I'm doing because I love the person I'm doing them for. Because I love the person I'm serving. And so I thank God for Jesus and I put my trust in him. I build a relationship with Jesus so that he knows my name to make sure that my name is in that book. And then finally, I stick with it. I endure all the way to the end. So I can't give you one of these snappy little answers, but I I can somewhat simplify it. Repent and be baptized. And by repent, I mean turn away from you and towards God. And by baptize, I mean enter into the family and stay there. And that's the best way for me to understand that. I I don't generally use the word heaven. I like to refer to eternal life more, but hopefully that covers all the bases. Let's look at the next one. The Bible talks about both predestination and free will, but those two are paradoxical in a way. Do you think that people really have free will in relation to salvation, or have God's people been chosen and set in stone since the beginning? Uh, Sadly, the correct answer to this question is yes, and that's the best answer. That is the only answer. Do I think that people have free will, or do I think that God's people have been chosen? The only biblical answer is yes. Um, And that is because... Both are true depending on your perspective. I don't have God's perspective. But if I did, I would have the perspective of someone who knows the end from the beginning. I would know the perspective of someone who when he said, when he said, let there be light, and the universe begins to go, when God does this, he, unlike any of the rest of us, He knows the thread that comes all the way to me when I'm three years old trying to make a decision if I want to go to heaven or hell. God knows the thread from that moment to that moment. And so from his perspective, sure, he knows everything. And since he's the one who set it all in motion, it's really his will that causes me to be saved. There are all kinds of other things that go into this. But from my perspective, I still had to talk to my dad and pray a prayer. From my perspective, I've still had to walk the journey through some really bumpy roads for the past couple of years, for the past 40 years. You know, that's my perspective. So both are true. Both are biblical. They are both there. Is God ultimately responsible for the salvation of a human soul? Yes. Is God ultimately responsible for the the soul that ends up in the lake of fire? Yes. He's God. He's in charge of literally everything. 
but is the person who enters into heaven at all involved? Yes, they responded. And is the person who ends up in the lake of fire at all responsible? Yes, they did not respond. And so both are true, and I don't have any better answer than that. Um, Real quick comment. John Wesley, I think it was John Wesley, it might have been his brother Charles, but was once asked this very same question. And uh, his answer was this. Standing at the gates of heaven, facing the outside, is the phrase, whosoever will may come. Anyone who's outside is willing to come in. But once you enter, you look over your shoulder and you see on the inside it says, chosen before the beginning of the world. And that's exactly the way Scripture talks about it. When you're talking to a person who is not a believer, Scripture consistently says you need to make a choice. When you're talking to a person who is a believer, Scripture consistently says God's really the one who made that happen for you. So it's a matter of kind of perspective. Uh, Let's move on to the next one. Uh, Can the congregation request songs for the band to play? Actually, we did a song, we're doing a song at the end today that is one that uh, was requested by our bassist, Doug, and the answer is, by all means, please do. Because figuring out new songs and and choosing songs every single week just takes a lot of time, more time than you would think. So if you have a song that you've heard on the radio, I might not pick it because you know what? Some songs that are on the radio just irritate me, but that's just me. Um, But if you have a song that you want us to do, yeah, please just go ahead and mention it. Put it in the question and answer thing and have people vote on it. Maybe we'll do that some week. You know, just have people, we'll do, anyway, let's move on. Is being angry with God a sin? What about being angry yet humble? Um, I would say being angry with God is completely not a sin. Completely not a sin because anger itself is not a sin. Anger is an emotion that is the human version of God's wrath. So God's wrath is recognizing when injustice has been done accurately and then feeling an emotion in response to that injustice. And so for God, He accurately determines when things are just or not. And so therefore, his emotional response to that injustice is accurate. Human beings have the the image of God on us, and this is part of the image of God in us. We too can sense injustice, and our response to that injustice is anger. The problem is that you and I have a bad sense of injustice or justice. We have a bad sense of it. And we frequently think that injustice has been done to us when it hasn't been done to us. And so then we get angry over a thing that is really just me not liking what you did, but you didn't do anything wrong. It's just me not liking it. And so then I'm using the emotion God gave me for injustice, and I'm applying it to something so much less than injustice. However, with all that said, the emotion itself is not the sin. It is all the other stuff that flows out of that emotion. It, it's the stuff that, that uh, makes me want to do something to you. So like Jesus says about that guy, he says, um, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've committed murder in your heart towards your brother. Well, that's because you're holding on to that anger towards that other person. If you feel the anger and then you let it dissipate, no. But back to the question of can you be angry with God? The book of Job, properly understood, is a book of a guy who for 40 chapters is angry with God and complains about God 
And at the end of the book, God shows up and he says, Job was right. What happened to Job was not fair. And therefore, Job's anger is also correct. Because God allowed something to happen to Job's life that wasn't fair. And so then Job's anger is a response to unfairness. And so the Bible actually says that Job was right. Should you be angry with God? Well, let's talk. You know, if you are, come and let's meet over coffee and let's talk a little bit about where that anger is coming from and, and where it needs to go. But see what's next. When pursuing God, what are the key practices to that pursuit? Is there a difference between pursuit and rote obedience? Um, so the easy answer to the second part of that question is yes, there is a difference. But there's this line in the book of Samuel where Saul has made a sacrifice. And Samuel comes up to Saul and he says, he says the Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. He, 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 he wants your, your loving obedience, not just your sacrifice. And rote obedience is when you follow the rule because it's the rule and you think you are manipulating the system by following the rule. I don't consider that obedience. I consider that manipulation. Whenever you do the thing God asked you to do because you're trying to force him to like you more, that's manipulation. When my wife opens the garage door and I haven't yet done the dishes and I run to the kitchen to get the water so that the water is already filling the sink by the time she's in, the water is already in the sink and it looks like I'm doing the dishes, that is not loving. And if she had asked me beforehand to do them, that is not obedience. That is nothing but manipulation. Now, um, when pursuing God, what are the key practices? Well, if you're doing it for yourself, then you're already lost. I would say that the heart attitude of a person who wants to pursue God has got to be that God is more valuable to you than the other things that are valuable to you. And then your behaviors follow that. For some people, pursuing God means I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, I'm going to read one verse, and I'm going to go on a nature walk. For some people, it's I'm going to read 12 verses and I'm going to study and analyze them. For some people, it's going to be I'm going to be silent and I'm going to pray. For other people, it's going to be I'm going to call my mom and have that conversation that I needed to have. It's going to show up and manifest in different ways for a lot of people, but it has to come from this place of I, I value God more than I value all this other stuff, and so I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something in that direction. Uh, I am not a very contemplative person. So some of those contemplative practices don't work as well for me. But for other people, they definitely do. And it has nothing to do with whether you are performing the tasks. And it has everything to do with whether you are pursuing the person. Building a relationship with God, trying to build a relationship with God. Let's see what else uh, 1 Samuel 15.35 says, God regretted making Saul king over Israel. If God is perfect and his choices are best, then how can he have regret? This is well debated a lot of times. Partially is the way you understand the word regret. Um, God does a lot of things where in the Old Testament, then he will later say, I regret that I did this thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that God has acknowledged he made a previous mistake. That means God wishes the entire situation hadn't happened. Why did they have Saul as the king in the first place? 
It was the people who had asked for it, right? The people said, I want Saul. We want, they said, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king like this. God gave them the exact kind of king that they wanted, and he regrets that that happened. That he had a plan. He wanted something else. Now, this leads us to another thing that we all need to know. God has two layers of plan. One layer of plan is the plan that we would say is this big picture plan. God knows the end from the beginning. And when he caused the universe to exist, he already knew where it was headed. And he knew where he wanted it to go. And he's got this big plan. And his big plan involves things like Jesus coming to save us. Involves things like eternity showing up after judgment. It involves all these things. But God has a different plan. And that different plan is not exactly expressed by plan as more as it's expressed by desire. Because God loves you. And God has a desire for your life that you might not be living in. And God might know that in order to get you to live in his big plan, he has to short-term do something in you or with you that does not meet his desire for you. God might desire for you to experience joy, but he's going to need to do something right now that brings you into a place of darkness so that you can eventually be in his big plan later. And he does that with the people of Israel here. He gives them the king that they asked for, even though he knows that's not good for them. And then later on, he tells Samuel, yeah, I wish I didn't have to do that. It's not that he's admitting he did a mistake or he did something wrong. It's that he wishes that that particular pathway had been different. Because he's got this big plan, and sometimes to get us on his plan, he has to take us through a detour that eventually gets there. Hopefully that answers that. It's a, it's a super difficult way of understanding that particular thing, but let's see what's next. Uh, any news on what is going on with the buildings next door? Ooh, so good news. Uh, some of you probably didn't even know this, but back in the springtime, we sold them. So we don't own them anymore. We got all that cash and now we're free. So there's a guy who's using the buildings over there for storage. He's going to tear down the front buildings, uh, the front building, and so that's going to be gone eventually. Uh, the back building he's using for storage for a construction company that he runs, and we don't have that albatross on our neck anymore. So that happened last spring, and it's significantly made a difference in our finances. Um, if it's a sin to kill, then why is there so much killing in the Bible? Oh, okay. Um, I'm trying to come up with a snarky way to answer this question. But see, here's the deal. A better question is if it's wrong to kill, why is there so much killing in the world? The Bible is just a record of things that have happened. So one question is why is there so much killing in the world? Well, we're really good at it. As human beings, we've been practicing it for a long time. And we, we really know how to do it well. And uh, so human beings just are flawed. We are broken, and we are not living out the image of God. And one of the manifestations of that is that we fight, wound, injure, hurt, and kill other human beings. Why is there so much killing in the Bible that seems to be endorsed by God? That's a slightly different question. Why does God endorse so much killing in the Bible? And I'll say this, uh, I repeat it every time I get a chance, uh, and it is this. There is one command God gave one time for one group of people that involved killing a bunch of people. 
Even though in our minds it seems like it's all over in the Old Testament, that's a lie. There is one command God gave one time to one group of people to do some, some killing. That was God commanding the people of Israel to kill the people who were living in the land of Canaan or push them out. They didn't have to kill everyone. They could have just pushed them out. But to get all those people out of Canaan, because A, Canaan was now going to be the land that God had promised to the people of Israel and they were going to have it. And B, God had already given the people of Canaan enough opportunity to follow him and they were done. He was done with them. And so this was judgment on them, just like the whole Noah flood thing. So this was judgment on them. But that was the only time God ever gave his people a command to do such a thing. Every other Old Testament time where we are told a story of someone going in and they killed all the people who were in that town, it is either outside of that command, and we should understand it as being a mistake, or someone, someone did the wrong thing at that time, like David, he does a whole lot of murdering here that was outside of what God had asked, or the continuation and fulfillment of that same original command to clear out the land of Canaan. So when they wipe out the Philistines, that's part of the original command. When David goes and he just attacks a town because he's attacking a town, no, that was not part of the original command. So why is there so much killing and death? That's a tough question. Um, a better question, or maybe just a better understanding, is to remember that God has the power of the human soul independent of death and life. So when a person dies here, that's not actually the worst thing that can happen to them. The worst thing that happens to any one of us is what happens after death, what happens to our eternal souls. That is not in any way to diminish the importance of a human life here on earth. Jesus died for us while we were on earth, while he was on earth. The living human being is precious to God, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, it's 1130. Uh, there are four questions on the screen I can see. Are those all of them? Okay. Looks like three questions. Okay. Maybe I can just race through these three real quick. Do pe oh, someone removed one. Whatever that one was, if you want to pop it back up there, go ahead and try it. Um, do our pet animals go to heaven? There is zero evidence in scripture that pets go to heaven. There's ample evidence in scripture that God made the animals and loves them. And so my seminary professor, I'm not going to tell you what I believe, but my seminary professor, his belief, he had this dog that he loved and the dog passed away. His belief was that when God makes the new heaven and the new earth, he is also going to make a new version of that beautiful pet. I'm not going to say that that's a promise. I'm just, and personally, I'm, I have a dog I'm not a dog person. I'm not very sentimental with regard to pets. My parents are. So if you ask them, they would say, oh, definitely Lucky's going to be in heaven. Um, but listen, here's the thing. We are never told in Scripture that animals have a soul in the way that humans have a soul. Jesus didn't die for animals. Animals can't sin, all that stuff. And so as a result, the eternal nature of whatever an animal is depends on whatever God chooses to do in the new heaven and the new earth when he recreates everything. I don't have any better answer than that. If somebody gives you Play-Doh, do you first make a ball, a snake, or something else? I'm a ball person. You know, it always starts out as a ball because I, I first squish. It's the squish, and then you feel guilty. And so then you have to shape it into the ball, and then you feel creative, and then it becomes a snake, okay? But I never eat it. Let's just make that clear. Um, 
If someone, is believer's baptism necessary to receive complete salvation and receive your spiritual gifts? Uh, do I like the letter E? Yeah, thanks, Jessica. Um, <laughs> that was hers. Uh, if somebody gives you, pla- oh, the top one, believer's baptism. Okay, let's shut it down. I'll answer the baptism one, and then we'll sing our final song. So you can take that off the screen. Otherwise, people are going to keep asking questions. Uh, is believer's baptism necessary? Uh, there are some church traditions that say that baptism of their variety or some other variety accomplishes a spiritual thing. And these are churches and uh, doctrines that believe that there is like the thing that the human being experiences. And then there is some sort of like mystical spiritual thing above us that sort of floats above us. And that what you can do is you can earn yourself some spiritual points in this spiritual plane by doing specific things down here on this earth. And that if I take communion enough times or I get baptized in just the right way or I do A, B, C, or D, then I'm going to earn myself some sort of like spiritual points up here that then gain me access, better access into God's kingdom. And I say this all the time. You've got to remember that God is not a voodoo doll, nor is he a vending machine. God does not operate on the basis of you do this for me and I'll give you a little bit of something. God doesn't work that way. God works this way. I love you. Come into my family. Have everything. That's the way God is. That's the way God is. We're the kind of people who are way outside playing in the mud and we're thinking to ourselves with all covered in mud, well, if I bring God this tiny little flower that I've found next to me, maybe he'll like me anyway. We're little children playing children's games with a God who already loves us. Do I have to be baptized in order to get full salvation or spiritual gifts? All of that stuff is doctrines taught by churches that are not actually focusing on the Bible. Yes, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Yes, Peter says, if you repent and are baptized, you will be forgiven, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter does not say, repent and be baptized in two and a half feet of water that are around 70 degrees, no warmer, no colder, and after you are baptized, then the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will feel tingly in your fingers and you will be able to look around and you'll see the world with new eyes and you'll be able to speak in tongues. Peter doesn't say that. What he says is, you want to be forgiven? Yeah. Come to Jesus. You want to receive the Holy Spirit? Come to Jesus. When we all met Jesus, we all got dunked by this guy named John and Jesus got dunked by this guy named John and Jesus told us that we were supposed to baptize other people to make more followers of him. So we're going to keep doing this dunking thing. But come to Jesus. We want you to come to Jesus. If you turn your life towards Jesus, all this other stuff is going to happen for you. And here's some water. Let's symbolize it. Let's make it real. I could ask you the same question about your wedding ring. If you take your wedding ring off, are you still married? It's just the visible symbol that we we have with people. There's a commitment that we make with God. And that commitment is saying, God, I want my life to be built on you. And all of these other things that we do, all of these games that we play, 
to try to manipulate God to do something for us, I imagine he's just shaking his head. Because I imagine that from God's perspective, it's like having a bucket of the best hot chocolate in the world. And you're holding it out to a child that you know will love it. Oh, it's the best. And that child is standing in front of you, twirling and dancing, trying to win your approval. And all you want to do is just say, stop with the dancing, come and have some hot chocolate with me. I imagine God is like that. I want to build my life on him, on his word, on who Jesus is. And I want all this other stuff to just dribble away. We baptize people in the church because the first century Christians baptized people, because John baptized people, because Jesus was baptized. We do not baptize people in this church because if you fail to get baptized in the right way at the right time with the right amount of water, you're not going to make it to heaven or you won't have the spiritual gifts. That's not in the scriptures and it's not what we believe and it's not what anyone should believe. We want people to come to Jesus and build their life on him. We've got one final song that we're going to sing and I've got three questions on your note sheet that I want to leave with you to ponder this week. But I want to I want to just remind you, when David met Goliath, he didn't bring a sword. Because it doesn't matter what tool you have, it doesn't matter what thing you do, it doesn't matter how many times you failed, it doesn't matter any of that other stuff. What matters is whether you are with God. It's not whether God is with you. He's with any one of us at any moment in time. He's everywhere. What matters is whether you are with him. And if I am with him, everything is within my grasp. And if I'm not with him, then everything is likely to fall. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.